Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Yeah? Okay? Doing okay? Good. I don't, well, it's not always a fair question, is it? Sometimes, you know, speakers will get up, how are you doing today? And it's like, well, actually, my kids spilled hot coffee on my lap on the way here. And, uh, you know, it's like, well, yeah. Anyways, um, uh, my name's Tim. I'm, uh, I'm on pastoral staff here, and I get the privilege of teaching uh, on a regular basis, unpacking scripture, and it's a, real, it's a real privilege to do that with you. And I think one of my favorite parts is getting to see how God speaks to different people in this community and how in their families, and their small groups, their housemates, how they live that out. Uh, the rest of the week, because that's always the goal, the word made flesh, that we, we live this out, and getting to see how God does that, it, it's a real privilege uh, to do that, and, and to be part of this community. Right now, we are in a series, uh, First and Second Kings, the title of the series is called Prophets and Kings, and we're, uh, we're walking through First and Second Kings over the next few months, and would encourage you to be, be reading these books, be reading First and Second Kings. Uh, thinking about them, writing down questions, uh, journaling on them, talking with your housemates, talking with the folks in your small group. Uh, this is where we're going to be as a community for a while. So we're going to be back in it today. Today we're going to be looking at First Kings, but we're going to start our teaching on First Kings in the book of Genesis. So uh, because we don't like going in straight lines. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 3 this morning. And Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and so the way the story starts off, God, uh, we're told, creates all things. He creates the sun and the moon, he creates the earth, he creates the, the dry land, he creates the sea, he creates, he creates creatures and, and plants and trees and animals and, and forms it into a garden, and then he, he creates man and woman as his image bearers to bear his image, and he puts them in the garden, he asks them to serve and take care of the garden, and then what we end up reading, we, we read this about God's relationship uh, to this place in Genesis 3, verse 8. And this is what it says. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So, so the man and the wife, they're in this garden, and it says, Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Which raises some interesting questions. Can't, can't God get through this garden without creating a racket? Is that, is this, and how does this work? I mean, God is spirit. Is he walking? How does this? Well, it's, it's interesting. The word there for walking, the word in Hebrew is hithalek. Can you say hithalek? And, and, it, and it means, uh, it's, it's walking or moving, but it has this continuous sense to it. So it's walking about, walking to and fro, or it could mean simply moving about, moving to and fro. And so, However we imagine this to be, however we interpret this to be, the, 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 the core idea, the core idea seems to be this, that, that, that God, in the beginning, God is not some other place doing some other thing. God's not somewhere else looking down at this place he's created. But that God has come down to walk with his people. God's come down to walk with this man and this woman. This, this is a theme that, 
Scripture uh, unpacks over and over again. But th- this idea that, that, that Scripture is saying, what it, when, when Scripture is presenting, what is God like? God, God, is, God is not some, some impersonal force that we figure out. God is a person who, commu- who wants to be known and comes down to walk with His people. God desires, God desires to come down and walk with you. God desires to come down and be with you. God desires to come down and walk with your son, with your daughter. God desires to come down and walk with your parents. If you're here today and, and, and you're not even sure you believe in God, through his scripture he says he desires to come down and walk with you. Your neighbor across the street, God desires to come down and be, make himself known to them and walk with them. That person this morning, you were arguing in your head with them. They weren't there, but you were arguing with them. That person. God desires to make himself known to them. God desires to come down and walk with them. The scripture says from the very beginning, God God is a being, God is a person who desires to come down and be with his people to make himself known. And scripture unpacks this in a whole variety of ways throughout the story of scripture. And so what we're going to look at today, we're going to look at how this this trajectory, this desire God, of God's to walk come down and walk with his people, how that gets unpacked in the book of 1st Kings. So now we're going to go to 1st Kings. And if you'd like to follow along, we're going to be in 1st Kings 6 today. And if you're looking for it in your Bible, it's about a third of the way in. 1st Kings is after 1st and 2nd Samuel and before 2nd Kings. Probably isn't helpful, so that's before First and Second Chronicles. So we're going to be in. Uh, we'll be looking at First Kings six, and so throughout script, you know, the, in the very beginning, we see that God desires to come down and make Himself known and be with people, walk with people, and and throughout Scripture, God. God makes himself known in all sorts of ways. God gives songs and stories and laws and rituals and symbols. And God gives buildings to communicate who he is to people. So, so he, has this, he has this people that he rescues out of slavery in Egypt. And he says, I want you to make a tent, a tabernacle, where you will come and worship me. I will come and dwell among you. And so they, they build this tabernacle. And then, then when they come into the promised land, he says, I want you to take this tabernacle and make it into a permanent building, a temple, where I will dwell, I will come, you will meet me, and you will worship me there. And so this temple, this architecture, this building, is a way of God communicating to his people what he's like, what he's about, that he is a God who desires to come down and be with them. And so this morning, what we're going to be reading is a detailed architectural description of the first temple. I know. (laughs) I'm excited too. (laughs) <laughs> so we're, we're going to read a big chunk of this architectural description of this first temple. And so just so we know where we're at, uh, where, where we're at, it's the year that this temple was built, around the year 967 B.C., so 3,000 years ago. And the, the, the king who's building it is named Solomon. He's the third king of Israel. 
And Solomon built the temple. Well, Solomon built the temple the way I remodel a kitchen. You know, I don't think Solomon lifted a hammer. He commissioned it. He, he footed the bill. He, he, you know, so that's the way he built the temple. But we're going to be reading about this first temple that Solomon built, what it looked like in detail. So I'm going to be reading, and on the, the, the screen is going to be a 3D model of what it might have looked like. Sound good? All right here. We ready? Cool. All right, let's play the video. Here's the, here's the model. Starting in ver, chapter 6, verse 1. In the 480th year after the Israelites came out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. The temple that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 wide, and 30 high. The portico at the front of the temple, at the front of the main hall, was extended the width of the temple, that is, 20 cubits, and projected 10 cubits from the front of the temple. He made narrow windows high up on the temple walls. Against the walls of the main hall and the inner sanctuary, he built a structure around the building in which there were side rooms. The lowest floor was five cubits wide, the middle floor six cubits, and the third floor seven. He made offset ledges around the outside of the temple so that nothing would be inserted into the temple walls. The entrance on the lowest floor was on the south side of the temple. A stairway led up to the middle level and from there to the third. The main hall in front of the inner sanctuary was 40 cubits Long. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 wide, and 20 high. For the inner sanctuary, he made a pair of cherubim out of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. He placed the cherubim inside the innermost room of the temple with their wings spread out. The wing of one cherub touched one wall, while the wing of the other touched the other wall and their wings touched each other in the middle of the room. On the walls all around the temple, in both the inner and outer rooms, he carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He also covered the floors of both the inner and outer rooms of the temple with gold. For the entrance of the inner sanctuary, he made doors out of olive wood that were one-fifth of the width of the sanctuary. In the same way, for the entrance of the main hall, he made door frames out of olive wood that were one-fourth of the width of the hall. He also made two doors out of juniper wood, each having two leaves that turned in sockets. He carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers on them, and overlaid them with gold hammered evenly over the carvings. Solomon also made all the furnishings that were in the Lord's temple, the golden altar, the golden table on which was the bread of presence, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the right and five on the left, in front of the inner sanctuary, the gold floral work and lamps and tongs. He erected pillars at the portico of the temple. The pillar on the south he named Jachin, and the one on the north, Boaz. The capitals on top were in the shape of lilies. And so the work on the pillars was completed. He made the sea of cast metal, circular in shape. 
measuring 10 cubits from rim to rim and 5 cubits high. It took a line of 30 cubits to measure around it. The sea stood on 12 bulls, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The sea rested on top of them, and their hindquarters were toward the center. It was a handbreadth in thickness, and its rim was like the rim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It held 2,000 baths. And so was completed all the work the King Solomon did for the temple. All right, that's good. Thanks. Okay, I know what you are thinking. I can't believe he read all that. That's a very, uh, it's quite a detailed, like, you know, it's all this detail about this building, right? Yeah. But here's the thing. We believe that all scripture, all of it, is inspired by God. He speaks to us through it. All of scripture, God speaks to us through. The, the really in- interesting parts, like the blueprints for the temple. And then the other parts too, the pillars of fire and walking on water and all that kind of stuff. But he, he, he communicates to us through all of it. And so uh, what I want to do now, we've got this picture, uh, we've got this picture in our minds about what the temple looked like, the first temple that Solomon built. But what I want to do now is I want to I dig a little deeper into it and ask the question, what did it mean? What did the temple mean to people? Because it wasn't just some random building it wasn't just, oh, well, we got to put the Ark of the Covenant somewhere, so we'll build something. No, it meant, I mean, what did people feel? What did people think when they, when they saw the temple, when they went to the temple, when they thought, what did it mean to people? This is something that I've been, over the last number of years, I've been learning about, and really for the first time, learning about and digging into, and I've just found it, um, it just fascinating what the temple meant in the story of Scripture. So the temple... When you, when you read through the story of Scripture, there's all these connections between creation, all the creation, and the temple building itself. And it seems to, this connection seems to flow in two directions. That, that creation is meant to, the, this cosmos we live in, is meant to be thought of as God's ultimate temple. We're meant to think of it that way. But also, when we think of the temple, the temple is a miniature picture of how God intended all creation to be in the beginning. It's how God intends it to be and how it will be in the end. It's this miniature replica, this microcosm, this, this miniature of how God intends all things to be. And so there's all these connections. I want to just explore some of them with you right now. So uh, what? there's a big pool of water out in front of the temple that, that we saw and we read about. And what was that called? The hot tub, right? No, the, the sea. Yeah, the, the sea. Why, why do they call it the sea? Because it's a miniature, because the, God created the dry lands, earth, sea. And so the temple has the sea. And then when you go into the temple, there's all these lights there. And when you read, it's interesting, when you read Genesis 1, it describes God creating the sun and the moon. When you read Genesis 1, it doesn't actually say the word sun and moon. When it talks about him creating the sun and moon, it says God creates the greater light and lesser light. And those same words, light, are used in the to describe the lights in the tabernacle and the temple. There's this connection there. The temple, what was it decorated with on the inside? Do we have that next slide? What, what, what was it decorated with? Gold. Where do, we, where do we see gold? In Genesis 2, gold is connected with the Garden of Eden. 
What else, is, what else decorates the inside of the temple? What images? Palm trees, flowers, creatures, animals. It's all this garden imagery. It's, it's meant to remind the person of the garden in the beginning. The Garden of Eden. And there's these cherubim all over the place decorated. Where's the first time we see cherubim? In the garden account. It's, meant to, it's, it's this picture, this miniature picture of how things were in the beginning. And, what, uh, and then, of course, in the temple, are there, uh, is there an idol there? In, in the temple of God, is there an idol there? No. There's, no. there's no statue. There's no idol there. But what is walking around in the temple? Priests, right? Humans. And the humans, what they were wearing is the same type of clothing that idols wear in other temples. The, 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 hum, the, the priests the ima- are the, the ones that bear God's image, which is, which is what you see in the beginning when God's talking about creation, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, who God finishes creation. What's the last thing he puts in there? Man and woman who bear his image. It's humans that bear God's image in the world, not some statue. And when God creates man and woman, he tells man and woman in, the, in Genesis uh, 2, he says, I want you to serve and guard the garden. And those two words, the next time those two serve and guard appear is when God's talking to priests to serve and guard the temple. There's all these connections. Creation is meant to be, creation is ultimately God's temple. And the temple is this, this miniature picture of how God intended things to be in the beginning. And what's the apex of it? What's it all pointed towards in the temple? What's it all lead up to? What that inner sanctuary, right? It's this cubical room, 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits, where, where uh, they would have understood that heaven and earth come together, heaven and earth meet, and that God's presence dwells there. The whole thing is meant to point towards the fact that, that the way God intended things to be is for him to come down and dwell with his people. In fact, one of the verses that we skipped over in 1 Kings 6, 1 Kings 6, 13, uh, God's explaining the meaning of this temple that he's having Solomon build. And in 1 Kings 6, 13, he says to Solomon, And I will live among the Israelites. I will live among them. and will not abandon my people, Israel. What's the, the apex? He says, this is, how, this is how creation was meant to be. And at the, the center of it, I desire to come down and be with, us, be with my people. This same uh, idea is unpacked in Leviticus 26. God's talking about this. And uh, God says, God's describing the building of the te- tabernacle, which becomes a temple. And he says, uh, I want you to build this and I'm going to come dwell. I want you to build a dwelling place. And I will come dwell with you so that... I will hit halake among you. What does that word mean? Walk. And where did we see that before? The Garden of Eden. God's heart is to come down and walk with his people. God's heart is to come down and be with his people. God, God gives them this temple and says, this is, this is a miniature uh, picture of what I always intended it to be like. And at the center of it is, is God coming down to walk with and to be with his people. Nerf basketball. So when... Uh, when I was in eighth grade, my parents decided to build a new house. 
So it wasn't far away. We just needed some more space. And so they're designing it, working with the architect, and they're looking at the basement. Uh, Michigan, everybody had basements. They're going to finish it. And they, and, they, and they came to my brother and I and said, what, you know, if you could have anything you wanted in the basement, how would you, how would you want it, the basement to be? I mean, we can, we can design it. And is there, you want a TV room, a kind of hangout room, or game room, or what, what would you like? And we said, um, you know what we would like? We would like a soccer field, which reasonable request, yeah? I don't see what the problem, a soccer field, yeah? And uh, if you knew us at the time, that would make a lot of sense. And so we said, we'd like a soccer field. We would like one, you know, one third of the basement to be a rectangle. Don't put drywall up, don't put carpet, concrete floor, concrete walls, indestructible lights, and we would want this to be our soccer field. And so they, you know, okay, you can have a soccer field. So we, uh, when, the, when the house is made, we, we go down there, we take duct tape and put it on the walls, and that's our goal, on one at each end. And then we had sleeping bags we'd put on the floor in front of it. That was the goal box. And then that way you could be down on your knees playing goalie and not, you know, tear your knees all up. And then we, would get, we got a Nerf basketball, and we covered it in duct tape so it could last longer. And then we would play one-on-one basement soccer. And I loved it. And I would, I would go play basement soccer right now if I could. We just had so much fun down there. And, uh, but if you, I mean, if you visited and dropped by and came, and you had never heard of soccer or saw soccer before, and you came in there and you said, is this what soccer is? You, well, no, not exactly. I mean, actually, it's outdoors and grass and 11 on 11, and the goals are big and the ball is bigger. No, this is a, this is a miniature, this is a miniature replica. This is a miniature picture of what soccer is. But it's one, it's not just a picture. You can, you, can, you, can, you can taste what soccer is like by participating in basement soccer. You can get an experience of it. God, God gives his people the temple and he says, this, this is a, a, miniature, a miniature image of how I intended things to be in the beginning, how they will be again in the end. And at, at the center of it is is my heart to come down and walk with my people, to dwell with my people. And, and when people came to the temple, they could get a taste of it. They could meet him there. They could experience him there. Because his heart was to meet, to walk with his people. Now, I want to just push a little further into this. A couple weeks ago, uh, I think two weeks ago, we were we were teaching and we were talking about a big overview of the book, uh, the books of First and Second Kings, and we talked about when these books were finally finally written down and compiled, and who kind of what was going on in the life of the people of God when they were finally compiled, and who the first readers of these books were, First and Second Kings. Who remembers? when the books were finally written down and who the first readers, who remembers what was going on in their lives at the time? Exile. Yeah, exile. So what happened is this, this empire, Babylon, had come over, had conquered the nation, had destroyed the temple, had conquered Jerusalem, and took people on this thousand-mile journey to the east. To live in exile. Now, if the temple has been destroyed, 
And if you're living a thousand miles from your homeland, why write down such detailed description of this building? I mean, imagine, imagine, imagine a, a young couple, new, newly married couple. Maybe, maybe they're living in Israel when Babylon came and conquered the nation. Maybe they saw Jerusalem burn. Imagine they, they went on this thousand-mile journey around the Arabian desert to Babylon. And they're, they're taken captive. Not all their extended family made it, but they survived. And now they're, they're trying to make a life together in Babylon. And imagine that um, the, woman, the woman gets pregnant and they have a daughter. And so this daughter begins to grow up. She gets, maybe she's eight years old, ten years old. And she's growing up and she's never been to this homeland She's never seen the temple with her own eyes. Imagine that um, after dinner, before bedtime, uh, the dad would, would talk about the scriptures, maybe read the scriptures to her, to the family. And he, one day he's reading, and he's reading 1 Kings 6, and he's reading all this detailed description, all this architectural description of the temple that no longer stands. And, and, and the little girl says, Dad, Daddy, why... Why, why did they write all this down? Why does it matter anymore? It's gone. We're not even there anymore. It's destroyed. Why, why, did, they, why did they write all this down? And imagine, imagine the dad looking at her and saying, little girl, we must not forget. When God gave us this temple, he was saying to us, how he always wanted things to be. He was saying to us how things were in the beginning. He was saying to us how things will be again in the end. Little girl, when, when God gave us his temple, he says to us that he wants to dwell with us and to walk with us. We must not forget that. Because that means that if this is what our God is like, if this is what the God of the universe is like, that means this, this exile it will not be the end of our family story. This is not the end of our story. That if we follow, if we trust in the God who desires to come down and walk with us, he will not abandon us here. Maybe you're here today. Maybe your last weeks or months or years have felt like exile. There is this spiritual homelessness, this homesickness, this disconnection from God, this fracturing of relationships. And maybe there's a voice that says in your head, oh, it's always going to be this way. This is the end. Maybe today God wants to say to you that he is the God who says to you how he intended things to be in the beginning, how they will be in the end, and he is the God who desires to come down and walk with you. He will not leave you here. Maybe you're here today. Maybe you're here and you feel alone. You feel lonely. Maybe God wants to speak to you today. 
Maybe he wants to say to you that he desires not to leave you alone. He desires to come down and be with you, to walk with you. Maybe he wants to say to you, did you notice? Did you notice how I didn't give everybody their own temple? Did you notice how I had one temple and it brought everyone together around me? Maybe he wants to say to you about his desire not only to walk with you, but to bring you together with other people he's walking with. Maybe you're here today. Maybe you're a skeptic. Maybe you have lots of doubts and lots of questions. And I would say this is a good place to be. We have questions. I have questions. This book is full of people asking God hard questions. Not always getting the answer they wanted. But God continually over and over and over again saying to them, I am the God who comes down to walk with you. Maybe today, maybe today you might take your cynical side of skepticism and set it aside. And maybe today you might take the genuine truth-seeking side and be here as a truth-seeker and simply say, God, God, it... God, if you really want to come down and walk with me, if you really want to come down and speak with me, will you say something to me today? Will you speak to my heart today? I'm seeking the truth. Maybe over the next 15 or 20 minutes, you would listen with your heart and see if he doesn't say anything to you. Maybe you're here, maybe you're here today, and in the past week, you have experienced God's nearness in profound ways. That he has been near to you and real to you. You have known him as the God who walks with you. And maybe today God might say something to you about, he might say that, that his temple, when he, when he gave his people the temple, that, that he wanted it to be a picture to the world of his heart to come down and be with people. A picture to the world of his heart to come down and walk with people. And maybe he wants to say to you, I have given this gift, this gift of the experience of my, my nearness, my presence to you. So that you might be walking, talking evidence to those around you of my heart to come down and walk with them too. Maybe today he might speak to you about that. The trajectory of Scripture from, from chapter 1 to Revelation 22, the trajectory is always, is always downward. Is God coming down to be with His people? God coming down to walk with His people? God comes down to the garden, to the first man and woman to walk with them. God comes down to the temple to dwell with His people and live among them and walk with them. The story of Jesus is the Son of God coming down to literally walk amongst His people and to get down further and to wash their feet and down further and to touch the leper and down further into the grave itself to rescue His people. The trajectory of Scripture is down. And then the Jesus followers gather 
And God sends His Spirit down to them to dwell in them, to live among them. And then we are told how the story will end. In Revelation 21 and 22. We actually, we actually taught on this the first week in January, that Revelation 21 and 22, the end of the story. Was anybody here that first week in January? Okay. Three of you? I think I would remember that. that oh, that was the day there were three people here. Yeah, yeah that's sticking my mind. Uh, but we talked about how, we talked about how when, 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 when Scripture talks about the way, the way history ends, that, that heaven comes down to earth, that God dwells with His people in this new city, that there is no temple. And then it says this really interesting thing, that the city was the shape of a giant cube. And we're thinking, why would the city be a giant cube? And then we talked about how a cube only occurs one other place in Scripture. And we just read it about it this morning. The inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, where heaven and earth meets, where God's presence fully dwells, was a cube. And that history is headed somewhere where, where heaven comes down to earth and God's presence is here fully. And He is the one. He is the source of life, the source of joy, the source of being, the source of love. And He comes and indwells this place fully with His people. The trajectory of Scripture is a God who comes down to be with His people, to walk with them. We're going to continue to meditate on this in the partaking of communion. And communion uh, communion remembers, relives, rehearses uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we, we, we uh, take the bread uh, that recalls Christ's body, Jesus' body broken on the cross, and we, we take the cup which recalls his blood shed on the cup. And this meal, uh, we, we relive the fact that God comes down to be with his people, comes down to rescue people. But it's not just a past tense. It's also present that communion, we commune, that God is here now by his spirit, here now by his spirit. And that in communion, we actually meet with him. He meets with us. And so we're going to partake in communion. Please feel comfortable just to observe us uh, doing this act of worship that Jesus' followers have done for 2,000 years. Let me pray and we will we'll do this together. Father, Son, Spirit, uh, we, do, we do recognize your presence with us and we want to make ourselves available to you. Um, this morning and um, yeah we we don't want this and father for myself and for my friends we don't want this just to stay in the realm of the intellectual the heady the interesting but father we really want uh we want the word to become flesh in our lives to be lived out and so would you speak to me would you speak to my friends this morning about what what do you have to say to us personally today about your heart to to walk with us and to be with us and what that means for us 
Yeah, we open our hearts up to now, up to you now, and we, we listen, and we know that you're here. We pray this in the good and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.